Nigan remain. <laughs> See, that's like my favorite joke. Um, are you ready, Anvil? One of my um, my mother's favorite Christmas stories, in, or book, it's a book and a movie, and also a play. Um, it's called The Best Christmas Pageant Ever. I don't know if you're familiar with the story, but if you aren't, I will tell you about it. Um, it goes something like this. The book, it's narrated in the first person, perspective by the unnamed daughter of the pageant's director. And in the book, there are there's a family called the Herdmans, and they have six children, Imogene, Ralph, Claude, Leroy, Ollie, and Gladys. And for lack of better words, they are juvenile delinquents, notorious for their rowdy, misfit behavior, including but not limited to cigar smoking, cussing, drinking jug wine, and shoplifting. And these children, they have never been disciplined because their father abandoned them when they were babies and their mother's always working multiple shifts to make ends meet. So they kind of fend for themselves. Um, despite their poor performance in school, the Herdman steadily pass through elementary school since um, holding any one of them back would mean having two or more of them in the same grade and no teacher was crazy enough to risk that. And in the book, they, they show up at Sunday school for the first time after being told that the church offers snacks, which they found out because they were stealing a kid's snacks at school. And he told them, I don't even care. Take it. I get all the treats I want at Sunday school. Thinking to himself, these kids will never bother me there. Well, they show up at Sunday school, and the, the Sunday they show up happens to be the Sunday that they're giving out the parts for the the nativity play. And most of the parts would usually go to certain well-behaved children, you know, of families that are in the church, have been there for a while. You know, the director, she's already got certain people in mind. She's only directing it this time because the person who usually did it fell and hurt herself, but she couldn't. So she's thrust into this role and she's got to, you know, find all the kids to play the parts and they would ask and kids would raise their hand and you would pick, you know, which one out of those. Uh, would take the part, but she's already got certain people in mind and ideas about um, what kind of person should play each character, as we, we all do when we think about the Christmas story. Mary, for example, she must be meek and mild, and uh, she has a sweet young girl named Alice who's uh, assumed to play the part of Mary. And, um, but the narrator's mother, the director, is flabbergasted when the Herdmans all volunteer for the lead roles. In the Christmas pageant, Imogene plays Mary, Ralph plays Joseph, the three wise men are played by Claude, Ollie, and Leroy, and the angel of the Lord is played by the youngest of them all, Gladys, who likens her role to a character from a comic book. And since the Herdmans have bullied all the usual cast members into remaining silent during the call for volunteers, the director has no choice but to cast them. Imogene, she threatened to stick a pussy willow in Alice's ear if she even volunteered to, to be Mary. And so she doesn't do that. So no one else is willing to volunteer. And so the Herdmans take over the main parts of the play. And the church, the saints were upset. Surprise, surprise. Some people said it wasn't fair for a whole family who didn't even go to our church to barge in and take over the pageant. 
But the pastor just reminded everyone that when Jesus said, suffer the little children to come unto me, Jesus meant all the children, including the herdmen's. Having never heard the Christmas story before, they take an uncharacteristic interest in the story through which the narrator is surprised to find herself and her parents thinking more seriously about the story's harsher aspects, about an innkeeper forced forcing a pregnant woman and her baby to sleep in a barn, or the, the family uh, on the run from King Herod or you know, who wanted baby Jesus to be killed. All the things we kind of take for granted. They were really stuck on those things. And when... They got to the part about swaddling clothes in a manger. Imogene asked, do you mean they tied him up and put him in a feed box? Where was child welfare? And everything was a bit of a disaster from the traditional standpoint. During one of the dress rehearsals, the fire department was called because a lady smelled smoke coming from the lady's restroom because one of the kids was smoking. Normally, there'd be a new baby in the church. It was a bigger church, and um, they'd play baby Jesus, but with Imogene playing Mary, no mothers would volunteer their precious babies to play Jesus, and so they just had a doll for the first time. When they were rehearsing, Ralph, who was playing Joseph, yelled out to everyone that Mary was pregnant, and that was just improper and shocked the church folk. Everyone in town was expecting the Christmas pageant to be a disaster, but the Herdman's unconventional performances actually made the whole show much more realistic and moving. It was one of those pageants where someone narrates and the children acted out. The only one who had any lines was the angel Gladys, the toughest of the bunch. The Herdman kids looked after each other because no one else does. And the big ones taught the little ones all they knew, and that explains how Gladys, the youngest, got to be the meanest of the bunch. And since Gladys was the only one in the pageant who had anything to say, she made the most of it. Hey! Unto you a child is born, she hollered, as if it was for sure the best news in the world. And all the shepherds trembled, sore afraid of Gladys, namely, but it looked good anyway. Instead of walking on and off stage like actors, the, the herdmen's are a little uncertain about where to go and what to do as the real-life family of Jesus and the wise men must have been. Instead of laying the doll representing Jesus in the manger, Imogene insists on holding it as if it's really her child. And when the wise men come, she parks at him. I've got a baby here. Don't touch him. I've named him Jesus. And the wise men choose to bring the baby Jesus a ham from the herdman's own gift basket instead of the crummy frankincense and myrrh from the story. And during the final scene, the narrator looks over from the choir and is dumbstruck to see Imogene weeping softly while hugging the baby. And it says, everyone sang Silent Night, including the audience. We sang all the verses, too. When we got to Son of God Loves Pure Light, I happened to look at Imogene, and I almost dropped my hymn book on a baby angel. Everyone had been waiting all this time for the herdmen to do something absolutely unexpected, and sure enough, that's what happened. Imogene Herdman was crying, and the candlelight, her face was all shining with tears, and she didn't even bother to wipe them away. She just sat there, awful old Imogene, in her crookedy veil, crying and crying and crying. And by common agreement, it was the best Christmas pageant the town had ever had. These dirty, rough children, somehow they captured the essence of the Christmas story more than anyone had before. And in the most unconventional way, God worked through six kids that no one expected him to use. And the town and a church was changed. Their eyes were open to the love, mercy, and grace of God like never before. Something that had been so traditional, so commonplace, so 
polished over time had been changed and the veil had been lifted and for a moment they all got a glimpse of what God had done and what God was doing through these children. And in Luke chapter 7, there's a story we're going to talk about. And it's about a sinful woman. It says in verse 36, And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. So a Pharisee, he invites Jesus to dinner. And behold, a woman in the city which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. I forgot my title. Do you see this woman? And while Jesus is at this Pharisee's house for dinner, there's a lady in town, and she hears that Jesus is nearby. And like the herdmen, she's not supposed to be in this Pharisee's house. She's not invited to be here. She shows up uninvited. The Bible calls her a sinner. And, you know, if you read the rest of the Bible, you'll find that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. But for some reason, the Bible doesn't refer to everyone that Jesus meets as a sinner. Only a couple. In fact, the only two people in the Bible, in the Gospels, that the Bible identifies as sinners specifically are this woman and Zacchaeus. And Jesus tells many others to go and sin no more, but as far as labeling someone specifically as a sinner, or using that word, it only happens to these two. We know that Zacchaeus was robbing people. He's working for the Roman government, betraying his own people in more way than one. And when Jesus goes to his house, the people are the ones that say, he's going to eat with a sinner. That's just people talking. That's what they do. And so I suppose if you look at it that way, this woman, she's the only person in the Gospels that the writers of the Gospels specifically refer to as a sinner. They call her a sinner. Her entire identity is that she is a sinner. We don't know what she's done. We don't know what she's doing. There's all kinds of speculation. You can, you can whatever, speculate all you want. But for her to be called that, for her to be identified as a sinner specifically, I think it's safe to assume that she was very much in this sin. And she was very much identified by the sin in her community. People knew this woman by her sin. And that's a pretty big deal. I don't know if you can imagine if that was you being known by your sin. I know some folks celebrate their sin and identify as their sin, but they don't believe it's a sin. But to know, can you imagine knowing that what you're doing is wrong? Knowing the way you're living your life is wrong. This woman is most likely Jewish. She knows, she would know the law, know of the law. Um, she would know right from wrong and she knows how she's supposed to live and what she's supposed to do and, and all that. Can you imagine knowing how you're living is wrong and having that attached to you like a label? Oh, here comes so-and-so. She's a, a town gossip. Or here comes this guy. He's the town drunk. Or here comes whatever. Insert your name and a sin following you. Here comes this person there. Whatever a liar or a thief or and this is where this lady is but something stirs inside of her 
And she hears that Jesus is in town and she makes her way to the place that Jesus is. And I don't know if we truly appreciate how big of a deal this is because this woman's a sinner. She's a known sinner. That means that what she's doing, how she lives her life, everybody in the town knows what she's doing. She's not one of those secret sinners. What we got amongst us. This is out in the open. Everyone knows what she's doing. And the place that Jesus happens to be at is a Pharisee's house. And the Pharisees were the holiest of the holiest. They would tell you that if you asked them. They had it all figured out. And if you were a sinner so much that everyone knew and everyone referred to you as a sinner woman, the last place you would likely go would be to a Pharisee's house. If you wanted to be judged, sure, you'd go to the Pharisee's house. If you wanted to feel bad about yourself, maybe you'd go to the Pharisee's house. If you wanted to have a good time and enjoy yourself, no, you wouldn't go to the Pharisee's house. But yet, the fact that Jesus is here, this trumps everything else in this woman's life. The fact that Jesus is in the house, this is the most important thing to her. No, nothing else matters what other people think, how she will be received when she gets there, who is in the house, whose house it is. Nothing else matters except Jesus. And so this woman, she comes to the house and she brings with her an alabaster box of ointment. There's a preacher um, UPC preacher in, in California, Lawrence Exum, and he has a lot of artifacts. I think I've shown you some before. This is, um, he's got a collection. This is what alabaster boxes would have looked like. There's a few of these. Um, so she would have brought this alabaster box of ointment, and people in those days, they sat on the floor with their feet off to the side behind them. They sat something like this kind of reclined a bit, and their feet were kind of hanging out. And so this woman, she comes with her alabaster box, and it's very valuable, and she takes it, and, and she stands behind Jesus, it says, at his feet. And, and um, she, she's, she's crying, and she washes the feet of Jesus with her tears, and she dries them with her hair and anoints his feet with this ointment or perfume from this alabaster box that she has. And she's, it's just an incredible scene. I don't know. Again, I don't know if we realize, like, how many tears you have to cry to wash someone's feet. It's a lot of, it's a big, moving, emotional thing happening right now. It's an incredible, moving scene happening at the home of the Pharisee. An incredible act of humility and worship, of serving. And this sinful woman finds herself in the presence of the Messiah and her reaction is to weep and to worship and to serve him, not caring one bit about what the others think, not caring one bit about the opinion of the Pharisee or the disciples or anyone else in the city. All she cares about is Jesus. And you've heard the story preached before, I assume. I'm pretty sure I've preached from it. And we dwell on the woman. We preach about the woman. Normally that's what I do, but I'm going to change it. And the Pharisee, he has a reaction to the scene, like most of us would. I think if we had someone over for dinner, and the town sinner came to our house and started crying and weeping and pouring stuff all over their feet, I think we'd, something, we'd do something. There'd be a reaction. Right? And so verse 39 it says, And now when the Pharisee which had bidden him, or invited Jesus, saw it, he spake within himself, or he said to himself, saying, This man, if 
he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. And so he thinks to himself, he says to himself, he says, if Jesus were a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman she was, he'd know that she was a sinner, he'd know all the things that she'd done. And this one act from this woman reveals his heart. Our response to others' worship will reveal what's in our heart. She does this, and his reaction is to question who Jesus even is. He invited them there because he thought it was a big deal. He's a prophet. He's going to have them over. And now this is happening, and he questions, is Jesus even this? Is this even real? He should know who this woman is. Surely he should know that she's a mess. He's, he's got to know. He should be able to tell that she's a sinner. Maybe he's not even a prophet at all. And my goodness, I pray. I, I don't ever get to this point in my life. I pray we don't ever get to this point in our lives where God is working on someone's heart and we start questioning if it's even real or not. We start wondering if the whole thing is real. And God's working and God's moving and God's calling and working on someone's life. And we... I pray we don't ever get to that place where we, oh, it's not even real. This shouldn't be happening. My goodness. The Pharisee was missing what was happening in his own house. And Jesus answers his thought, which in itself is incredible. And he tells him a parable about two um, people who owed money to a debtor. One owed a little bit and one owed a great amount. Both debts were erased. And Jesus asked the Pharisee, whose name was Simon, he says, Simon, which one do you think would be more grateful? And Simon says, the one who was forgiven the most. And Jesus answers and says, you got that one right. And then what happens in verse 44, it says, And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Thou gavest me no water for my feet, but she has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman since the time I came in has not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. In the English standard, he turns to Simon and says, Do you see this woman? Do you see this woman? Simon, do you see what is happening here? Simon was there. Simon was around what was happening. It was happening at his table. It was happening at his house. Simon could see what was going on, but Simon was not seeing what was taking place. And how many times are we around church, around people of God, or out and about in our world, seeing but not really seeing what God's doing, not really seeing how he's working. God was working on this woman, and God was doing something in the heart of this sinful woman. But all Simon could see was, she's a sinner. This is ridiculous. This isn't how the things are supposed to go. This isn't, she shouldn't even be here. Jesus should know better. He shouldn't allow this. People aren't supposed to come in off the street. They're not supposed to be doing that. She's not supposed to be here. I didn't invite her here. I just wanted to have a nice, little, neat time in the presence of Jesus. I just wanted to sit down with him and have a lovely meal together. And here she is, ruining everything, causing a scene and making a mess. Who does she think she is? She is a sinner. She shouldn't even be here. 
And the best Christmas pageant ever on the surface, it was a mess. It didn't go the way that it was supposed to go. The Herdmans, they were bad and they were dirty and they didn't know how you were supposed to act in church and they said the wrong things and they brought a ham for baby Jesus and they didn't do anything the way they were supposed to. They What they said and did was shocking and they took over the play and it wasn't supposed to be like that. We showed up for a nice, neat Christmas pageant with all the nice, clean Kids that have been going to church their whole lives and acting it out, and that's not supposed to go like this. But yeah, and in that mess, God worked. In that mess, God moved. I mean, yet it was through that woman's tears and through the, her alabaster box and through her worship that God was working. It wasn't through Simon. It wasn't through the, the meal or all the things he had planned. It was through that woman and her tears and her worship. We were going... We wouldn't even know the name of Simon the Pharisee if she didn't show up at his house. <coughs> we can get so caught up in the way we think things are supposed to go. Oh boy. And the songs we sing or don't sing, and the services we have or don't have, and the topics that are or are not preached about, and the quietness or the noise of the service. And we can get so hyper fixated on all of those things and miss what Jesus is actually doing. When the babies are crying, he's working. When the, the noise the kids are making, they're taking in the sermons. And those new songs that you don't know, someone is hearing them and taking them home and they're singing them in their kitchen and those songs are bringing them to a place of worship. And those events that we have, I know they get tiring doing it as often as we've been doing it, but people are connecting and they're developing friendships outside of the 90 minutes we normally spend together. People are talking to those they normally wouldn't. They're sitting beside people that normally wouldn't in those get out and greet someone moments. I hate them as much as you, but I do it anyway because love is being spread and people are greeting each other and smiles are being given and exchanged and things are happening in those canceled services. I know some people don't like that, but volunteers get to catch their breath so that they can serve better, more effectively later on. And those focused prayer services, people are learning to intercede and to push in prayer so they can be more effective for the kingdom. Coming to those, all the things that we have is establishing a foundation for our families in the future and our giving, the mission moves forward. But if we just look at all the surface stuff and say, well, it's supposed to be like this and I suppose these things are supposed to have a checklist and all these things we check it off and that's what church is. We're missing it. Simon just wanted to have a nice meal with Jesus and his disciples, but this crazy sinner lady came in and ruined the whole thing. And yeah, things don't go the way we think they should often. And that's fine. Because Jesus is working through it all. So we can get upset like Simon, or we can open our eyes and see what he's doing. Simon do you see this woman? Do you see what is happening right now? Simon. He was so caught up in the way things were supposed to go and the appearances. This woman wasn't supposed to be at his house. And the tradition that he was missing the beauty of what was happening. All he saw was a sinner causing a scene. And what was happening was a woman was repenting of her sin. A woman was worshiping Jesus. A woman's life was being changed. Well, that wasn't supposed to happen there. That was, this wasn't the time for that. There's a time and a place, and it's not this. 
It's always time for Jesus to work. For some reason, we get things balled up sometimes. Wednesday is for a Bible study. It's boring. He talks too long. He gives us papers that we don't want. We may or may not go to Bible study, depending on how we're feeling that week. Sunday morning, that's for everyone. We don't like to pray too much then. We may a little, but it's supposed to be more reserved and laid back. And maybe we'll go to the altar, but normally we won't. But Sunday night, he's supposed to preach hard and fiery. That's when we can have a move of God. But God doesn't work like that. We just baptized three people on a Wednesday. And I did some math. And the five years that we've been here, 70% of the people that have been baptized were not baptized on a Sunday. It's not supposed to happen like that, if you ask anyone. Just got this crazy idea. I think it's in the Bible that if someone wants to get baptized, we should do it right away. But <laughs> it's in there, I know. But we can miss out when God is doing because it's outside of our schedule. We think, well, God can only move in this time, and God can only do this at this time. And if we do this or sing this or this person preaches or whatever, um, we preach on this thing, whatever. I don't know. I don't know what everybody thinks. We can miss out on what God's doing because it's outside of what we expect in our schedule. I told you about baptizing in Benin. We baptized 21 people in one day. That was a Saturday. It wasn't a Sunday. We just went up. Um, had a little bit of teaching and then baptized a bunch of them. And some sketchy water and I was itchy afterwards, but they lived to tell the tale. Well, we can miss out on what God is doing because he doesn't work in our schedule. If we try to force him into all these things, we're going to miss out on a lot of what he's doing. If we try to relegate God to only moving at a certain time or a certain place when the conditions are just right, we're going to miss out on so much of what he wants to do in our lives, in our homes, in our families. We treat the, sometimes we treat the spirit moving like it's an eclipse, just random event that happens when everything is lined up just right. If we get everything lined up right, then we're going to have a move of God. And then God's going to do something. And oh my goodness, I can't wait for that day when everything's lined up. Whew. Well, the Bible says, John 3 and 8, The wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whether, whence it cometh or whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. You might be familiar with this passage in Acts chapter 2. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all of one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. And it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The Bible compares the Spirit to the wind. In fact, the word spirit also means wind. Eclipses don't come every day, but you'd be hard-pressed to find a day without any wind, without any breeze of some sort. At some point during the day, 
there's a wind that blows. At some point during the day, there's a breeze that blows. God's moving is not meant to be a rare occasion when everything is lined up right and the special hits just right and the preaching, oh, it's fiery and he screams till his voice is gone or the right amount of people are here and all the songs just go and the singing's just... It's not meant to be a rare occasion when everything's lined up. It's meant to be a daily thing, an everyday occurrence. But we can be missing out on it because we're blind to what he's doing. We're wrapped up in our own ideas of how things should work. Don't be deceived. God is working. God is moving. Simon, do you see this woman? Verse 44. And he turned to the woman and said unto Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house. Now gavest me no water for my feet, but she hath washed my feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss, but this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. Verse 46. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Said Simon... You haven't washed my feet. But she's washed them with her tears and dried them with her hair. You haven't greeted me with a kiss. She hasn't stopped kissing my feet. You didn't anoint me, but she has. Simon, you've got it all together. You're religious. You're a, a leader. You know the word inside out. You know all these things. But Simon, you're missing what's happening. You didn't even get the basic stuff down. You didn't wash my feet. You didn't greet me properly. You didn't anoint me. God help us if that's us. We know the word. We've been in this long enough. We know what we're supposed to do. We do all that's expected of us. God help us if we just miss out on the basic things. This woman fell at the feet of Jesus and worshipped him. Simon did not. He was far too dignified. He didn't even do the customary greetings the kiss the washing of the feet he was above that he thought Jesus was lucky to be in his house as far as Simon was concerned he should just be happy that I allowed him in God help us if that becomes our attitude I'm far too dignified to shed a tear I've been in this too long to make a scene. I'm far too dignified to bow and worship, to weep in the presence of Jesus, to pour my life out at his feet. God, help us if we develop the attitude that Jesus should just be thankful that we've even come here, that we continue to do this. God, help us if we forget the simple, basic things. Worship, prayer, Praise, calling out to God in desperation, sacrifice. We've mastered everything else. We've got holiness down. We know all the rules and regulations. We've got talent. We get everything so polished and looking good and all this, but we are missing it. Do you see this woman? Jesus isn't necessarily looking for all those things. It's fine to do. It's okay. Go ahead. But he's over here working in the mess. He's over there 
moving in the broken heart of a sinful woman. He's working in our town. He's working in your neighbor's life. But our eyes can be closed to it because they're not here in church with us. But when we're talking to them, when they start opening up, he's working. We've got to open our eyes and see. This wasn't at the synagogue when this happened. This is at some random Pharisee's house. He's working. We can be blind. and Our goal could just be to get everyone to come into the church. But God can work outside of the church. Bring them in after. Yeah, sure. But they don't need to come here for God to work on them. They don't need to hear me preach for God to work on them. You can pray with them. You can testify to them. You guys know the word. You can share the word. He can work through that. But if our eyes are closed to it, we just we miss it. And there was another crazy person. I don't know how bad everything is. Maybe they're telling you how, how bad everything is because they want you to pray for them. I don't know. But we can miss it, just like Simon. He had it all together. But he missed what God was doing right at his table. He's working in our town. He's working in our neighbors' lives, but our eyes are often closed to it. And the sinful woman, she grasped a hold of something that David said in Psalm 51. The sacrifice of God, he said, are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. He's working in the brokenness. He's working in the places we don't expect him to. So we need to drop the facade, fancy word for you, and open our eyes and see what he's doing. We can see a broken person, a broken spirit. That's where God works. Once upon a time, we were that person. He worked in our lives. Once upon a time, I was that sinful woman. Not no sinful woman, but I was in her position. Once upon a time, I needed his grace and his mercy. I still do. Once upon a time, we were broken and he worked in our hearts. He works in places we don't expect him to. And this is what happened. He said, wherefore I say unto thee, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but the who little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. This woman, she found forgiveness in a Pharisee's house. She was not the only sinner in that house. She was not the only person in the house that wasn't right with God. But she's the only one whose eyes were open. We can have it all together on the surface, but have our eyes closed. Well, that doesn't stop him from working. He's working. He's working. And I want to be part of it. I don't want to be like Simon and just see the surface. I want to see what he's doing. So we're going to pray here. We can stand. We're going to under the altar if you want you pray in your seat but let's pray let's pray that our eyes would be opened Simon do you see this woman let's pray honestly with God 
tonight. Let's pray that our eyes would be open because I know God's working. He's working in our midst. He's working in our homes. There's people that fight with you every day. He's working in that. We just have to have our eyes open to see it. He's working through all that mess. That's what we call the scene. Some of us, we've got scenes happening every day. God can work in that. God can work in that brokenness. Let's pray that you would open our eyes to see what it is that's going on and we would be used to, to help administer those situations. Let's pray together. Well, it's a little different, but let's pray. God, open our eyes tonight. Jesus, help me to see what it is you're doing. God, in my family, God, in my home, God, in my neighborhood, in my workplace, Jesus. I pray, God, help me to see through your eyes. God, help me to see what it is that you're doing. In Jesus' name, I know you're working. I know you're moving. God, help me to see it. In Jesus' name, hallelujah. Let's pray.